first started out uh, working in business, I was kind of, one of the things I had to do was I was the office boy. And one of my jobs was to distribute the um, pay slips to the staff. They were all weekly paid at the time. And so it was sort of my job to uh, be super careful about people's pay packets. Because if there was one thing that, I was, that was impressed upon me is you didn't make a mistake about this. You had to be really, really careful about people's pay packets. Now, at that stage, uh, people's pay, pay packets were always cash. Didn't have, checks were a bit edgy. I mean, I don't want they may gift. Uh, that would have been completely off, off the scale or, or paying directly into your bank. It was all cash, even that counted out. But what you didn't do is leave people's pay slips lying around for others to see. That was all, I mean, that was probably a dismissible offence. It was, it was really serious. You, know, you did not do that. It was super confidential. They all went in sealed envelopes. They probably still do. And you had to make very sure that you gave the right envelope to the right person. It simply wouldn't do to have for someone to see someone else's payslip with their wages or their salary or whatever. So I was a bit surprised uh, last week, actually, chatting with Julie. Um, <laughs> she didn't know I was going to say that. Uh, um, when she was telling me, when, when they were in India, because uh, Dick and Julie go to India working with Asha quite often, and uh, she was saying to me that uh, in India, people are much more free and easy about these things. They quite openly and naturally talk to each other about their salaries, and they ask each other, you know, what are you earning, and what are you spending, and what have you got? That is so un-British. We, we, we wouldn't do that. But apparently in India they do. Um, deeply un-British, because for many of us here, our wages and our salaries remain a slightly taboo subject. A bit taboo in this country. In fact, in our culture, there are actually two things that we absolutely fixate about, but we do it all anonymously. So we fixate about sex, and we fixate about money, but we do it anonymously. You will very rarely find most of us talking personally about either of those issues, even with our close friends. There's a tension in the room now. <laughs> Relax, I'm not going to talk about sex. <laughs> but it does remind me of something that I think I've shared a few times. Many, many years ago, someone said to me, it's the unshared areas of our lives where Jesus is not Lord. And maybe that's a bit of a prompt for a few of us in this room to make sure that we, we seek out trusted friends with whom we can and will talk openly about vulnerable areas including those two. But yes, relax. I'm not going to talk about sex. Oh, but don't relax, because I am going to talk about money. It's a bit like that, that sort of awkwardness is a bit the same when we talk about giving, specifically money. And, and when you raise the subject and say, well, that's what we're talking about this morning, you can almost feel the slight tensing of the stomach muscles the slightly awkward glancing down and shuffling of feet. It's an awkward area, or it can be for many of us. Of course, we try to keep up with the appearances that we're all just totally down and cool with this, it's okay. But 
know, some of us are kind of just not. It's a bit uncomfortable. So why is it uncomfortable? Well, I think it's uncomfortable partly uh, if you're a listener, you know, in the congregation or whatever, um, and you're listening to it. And, and Adam touched on this last week, so I'm not going to expand on it. But um, it's uncomfortable, or it's awkward, or it feels a bit, uh, a bit touchy feeling, uh, a touchy sort of area, because it kind of triggers all sorts of reactions in us. Obligation, unwelcome expectation, maybe even resentment, pressure, guilt, embarrassment maybe, maybe embarrassment about revealing what we have or embarrassment about admitting what we don't have. So it can be kind of uncomfortable to talk about this area, <coughs> this area if you're a listener. Believe it or not, it can actually be uncomfortable if you're a teacher here at the front, if you're standing on stage talking about it, that can be quite uncomfortable too for a couple of reasons. The first is that people might perceive you have a vested interest. You see, if you're actually on paid staff of the church, oh, well, if I talk about money, I mean, I mean, some of that's coming into my pocket. And so... No matter how um, completely untrue that is of you, you know, I can assure you that nobody talks about it with that motivation. Nonetheless, it might be perceived that there's a kind of vested interest here. You're just making sure that the church has enough funds to pay your salary. So that can make it awkward. And actually, that's something that the Apostle Paul was quite um, familiar with and talked a little bit about uh, in 1 Corinthians 9. In that passage, he affirms quite clearly, uh, there and elsewhere, that those who, like himself, are working to see churches planted and churches established and churches built up, that those people, they do have a reasonable right to, um, to look to those whom they're benefiting to support them. But Paul was also acutely aware that there was a risk involved in that because people might say that they were just doing it for personal financial gain. They were sort of peddling preaching for profit. And people did that in, in Paul's day, in the time of the New Testament. There, there would be sort of philosophers and teachers who would go around and they would, would do, you know, they'd give a, a speech or some instruction and they'd do it for payment. And Paul didn't want people to think that that's the only reason he was doing it. It, it happens, if you notice, it happens today as well. Only now it's with politicians. So if you're a politician, particularly if you're a failed politician, it works particularly well that you can then get onto the speaking circuit. And then you can go and give talks for an hour or so for some immense amount of money. Um, apparently it seems to be a thing. Um, but Paul was very concerned because he didn't want people to misunderstand why he was doing this. And although he says, look, I, I do have a right to to ask for this, and most of the other apostles in the New Testament did, did exercise that right. Paul said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that, because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. And so he would not claim any support from those churches amongst whom he was working. Instead, he relied on two things. Firstly, he would sometimes simply support himself through his trade. He, most Jew, Jewish boys learned to trade. Paul was a tent maker, or some translations say he was a leather worker, which I prefer. 
if you know me, you'll understand that reference. Um, so he would either support himself or he would happily receive financial support from Christians in other places who wanted to support his ongoing work. So uh, a good example of that was the church at Philippi who were really very keen to support what he was doing and they regularly sent him money. So he went to Philippi, planted a church and uh, people became Christians and they really wanted to help him. So when he went on to Thessalonica, uh, they said, can we help you? Can we fund you? Can we support you? So they'd send somebody with money or whatever to, to support him. Same thing when he went down to Corinth uh, and was, was working there. Still, Church of Philippi wanted to help him there as well. And probably the same when he was in Rome. So those are two ways he drew support. Because he didn't want to make use of his right, though, even though it is. So that's a, it's an awkward area, you know, do people feel there's a kind of vested interest lurking around here? The second uh, reason it's awkward for those of us who teach is that there can be unwanted associations and distorted teaching around this whole area. Now, many of us may have heard or read or seen um, churches or groups where the membership were placed under great an incessant pressure to give more and more and more and much of it seemed to uh, end up funding the extravagant and lavish lifestyle of the senior leader. You find these stories in the papers and online quite frequently and it undermines credibility. I was reading um, not that long ago uh, a particular church leader from a mega church someplace or other who was before the congregation and quite openly saying, I, you know, I just know, because you know, I've got this travelling ministry as well, I just know that the Lord wants me to have a private jet. Not just any private jet, a really, really expensive private jet. You know, I, I just feel God said, I, I need to have this. this is, you know, it's important for the ministry. If you want to support the ministry, you know, this is what God said we must do. So no, no pressure there, but this is what God has said. And so you know, the private jet is a thing. It didn't actually work very well in that case. I understand that people were <clears throat> none too impressed about that and it wasn't too much later that he had to admit that, oh, maybe God has changed his mind and doesn't want me to have a private jet. Who knew? But that is the sort of thing, we don't want to be associated with that. It's often linked, it turns out, sometimes to sort of corruption and dishonesty and immoral stuff that's going on behind the scenes. We don't want to have anything to do with that. So that can be a bit awkward if you're standing talking about money and giving because, well, people might be thinking that sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, there's a whole theology behind why people put that pressure on people, but it won't go there now. So for all these reasons, talking about giving, especially in terms of money, can be a touchy thing for many of us, both speakers and listeners. So how can we gain a healthy perspective in this area? The first thing I want to say is we need to begin by seeing giving through the lens of discipleship, of our following Jesus. And following Jesus, what does that mean? It's not merely subscribing to certain beliefs, to some convictions, to holding certain truths. Now, don't get me wrong, truth is really important. But being a disciple is more, much more, than merely subscribing to certain beliefs. 
And it's more also than embracing a certain moral framework, how we behave, how we live, how we speak, how we act, what we do. Those things are really, really important. It is important how we live. There is things that Jesus says, this befits disciples and this does not. But that's not at the centre of what it means to be a disciple. And there are are things, practices that we can and, and do well to adopt as believers, as followers of Jesus. It's good to pray, it's good to come and gather with with other Christians and worship. These are good and important practices if we want to sustain our Christian. But that's not at the core of it either. You see, when we commit ourselves to Jesus, it involves a fundamental change of ownership in our lives. A fundamental change of ownership. Jesus puts it very bluntly. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Or as it's paraphrased in the message, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am, he said. Ouch. That's quite direct. But that's the heart of discipleship. He puts it even more bluntly in Luke 14. If you want to be my disciples, he said, you must, by comparison, hear that, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. He wasn't saying we should hate our families, but compared to how we esteem him, compared to our commitment to him, compared to the supremacy that we give him, everything else is looking like kind of hate. I was um, listening to a snippet on the radio at the end of last week, and uh, they were having an interview with, uh, uh, concerning one of the most successful psych- professional cycling teams uh, in the world. You've probably heard of them, you've come on the news. Team Sky, really kind of, I mean, if you're cycling nuts, then you'll understand. They were really, really top of the professional cycling circuit. And the interview was taking place because Sky has withdrawn and has been replaced by someone new. And as they were interviewing uh, the new principal, he said something very significant and quite hard-hitting. He said, this isn't merely a change of sponsorship, this is a change of ownership. Not a change of sponsorship, a change of ownership. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is not merely a change of sponsorship, it's a change of ownership. When we become followers of Jesus, we're not merely accepting a new sponsor, we're recognising a new owner That's what discipleship means. And if we choose to live as disciples of Jesus, then effectively everything that I am and everything that I have now rightfully belongs to him. I am merely administrating it for him and with him. And that puts quite a different perspective on giving and on the practical, financial, monetary things we have. 
So when seen through the lens of discipleship, I want to try and help us understand just a few New Testament principles that we need to keep in mind if we're going to have a healthy perspective on giving. And that first one we just need to understand. We are now under new ownership. So, some principles. Firstly, first principle of giving is that we give ourselves. It's not first and foremost about money. It's about myself. Paul speaks of the generosity of the Philippians in this way. He says, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then by the will of God, also to us. First to the Lord and then to us. You see, we need to view, I need to view my financial giving as just one aspect of the much bigger issue of self-giving. When I chose to follow Jesus, to become a disciple, I gave myself wholly to him. That includes my time, my physical strength, my priorities, my mental energies, my emotional energies, my gifts, my skills, my abilities, my waking and my sleeping, my possessions, my home, and yes, my resources and my income. I have given myself. Now Jesus is always pursuing relationship with us and he wants to partner with us in putting all of those things I've mentioned, time, home, gifts, all of it, he wants to partner with us in putting those things to work for the kingdom, for his kingdom. But if I assume somehow that what I give is no one's business except mine, and I've heard that said, well, it's my business. If that's my attitude, I really haven't understood discipleship. Really haven't understood what it means to follow Jesus. Because following Jesus is, I'm giving myself. This is me, I am yours. That's what being a follower of Jesus is about. Jesus is my master. He loves me and he desires the best for me. His kindness is immense. But he still has an absolute right to direct my decisions. So the first principle is that we give ourselves. Secondly, the New Testament does say and does teach and Jesus himself does make perfectly clear that there are responsibilities on disciples responsibilities on disciples to provide support for others. And broadly speaking, that falls into three categories. To those who are spreading the message of the kingdom. I talked earlier about how the church in Philippi was supporting the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself was supported. I, it's, you don't actually hear much about it. You actually have to sort of dig in a bit. But you know, how, how did Jesus live for three and a half years when he was going around teaching and, and preaching and healing and delivering people how on earth did he live well he had a group of women female followers of his who were part of the sort of crowd of his followers who were obviously well off and they supported him they were amongst those who consistently during those three and a half years supported him and his disciples to enable them to do that 
They were there at the cross and at the resurrection too. So he accepted support from those disciples who followed him. And he teaches his own disciples that they should accept support too. Because, as he says, those who work deserve their pay. Says it quite openly that the disciples they should accept hospitality. They should, when they go to a place, they should be uh, be unhesitant in accepting offers of hospitality, of food and and shelter, and because a labourer is worthy of his pay. Paul himself was supported, as I said, by one young church when he moved on to plant others. So that's the first category that there is a responsibility on Christians to support. Secondly, those who are called to serve by leading and teaching the church. Paul repeats that those who work deserve their pay. He talks in terms of that those who are taught share everything with those who are doing the teaching. And he tells Timothy that those, like Jesus, those who work deserve their pay. In fact, he, he has a rather favourite phrase which I had to check out. He talks about, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. Now, hands up if you've got an ox. No, a bit weak on the oxes around here. Oxen, beg your pardon, around here. Okay, I had to sort of work out, what on earth does that mean? But in the uh, first century, um, it was quite common, if you had a field and you had some grain and you wanted to, um, wanted to have the grain sort of trodden down to break open the husks so you can get the grain from your wheat or whatever it was, um, you'd put it on a solid floor and you'd borrow your neighbour's ox or, or have an ox and uh, they would go stamping around and they'd break it all up. Okay, So that's how it worked. And the Old Testament principle, where that phrase comes from, um, was that you shouldn't put a muzzle on the ox because if there's a muzzle on them, they can't eat anything. And you should let them eat some of the grain. You should let the ox that's doing the work actually eat some of the stuff that he's splitting open because that's reasonable in other words don't starve the person who's doing the work for you that's the idea behind it don't starve the person don't constrain or restrict the person who's trying to serve you that's a new testament principle that applies to those who are teaching and leading in the local church don't weaken someone by withholding resources when they're working hard for you and then the uh, the third area is third main category of support is for those who are in need and are struggling. Jesus speaks quite openly about how we should give to the poor. Give to the poor without making a big song and dance about it. You know, he was quite, don't do that. But yes, when you give. And one of the reasons Paul talks when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, he talks to them about why, uh, how he's lived amongst them and how they should follow his example. And uh, he says, you know, I worked amongst you. I actually was self-supporting. I was doing my tent making or whatever. Um, and that was to give you an example of how by doing that, by supporting yourself, by raising your own income, you can help those in need. So that's another area that we seek to give to, support those who are in need, who are struggling. Okay, so the first principle is that we give ourselves. The second is that there are responsibilities. But if that's why we give, the only reason why we give, we have missed it. 
if we only give because we recognize those responsibilities out of a sense of duty, then we've missed the whole heart and tone of New Testament teaching and New Testament practice about money and giving. Yes, those responsibilities are, are real and valid, but that's not the point. In the New Testament, they had an eagerness to give, a passion, a desire, a readiness. A, they were enthusiastic. They wanted to. Examples of that, in the beginning of Acts, you read how the church was, was busy uh, and they were expanding, and they quite spontaneously wanted to express their care and concern for each other and, and for those in need by sharing their resources. So they would quite freely share what they had, and if they didn't have enough to share, they would go and sell something that they did possess, one of their assets, house or land or whatever, and share the proceeds. They didn't they weren't told to do that. There wasn't an obligation on them to do that. They just wanted to do that. It was a spontaneous thing. There was no pressure put on them to do so. As uh, uh, Peter makes very clear in Acts chapter uh, 5 when he's talking about Ananias and Sapphira. You, if you know your Bibles, you might know a bit about that story. But the point I want to make is Peter is quite clear to this guy who kind of given because he wanted to look good. He said, look, you sold this land... It was yours. No one told you you had to do that. And when you sold it, you had the money. It was yours. No one told you you had to give it. It was your choice. Your problem was that you lied. Bad plan. When the Holy Spirit at work, don't lie. But there was no pressure on them to do so. It was something they were eager to do. And... Again, the Philippian church is a brilliant example of this because they not only eagerly supported Paul when he was out there planting churches and, and sharing the good news, they were also keen to help um, the poor Christians in Jerusalem, the sort of mother church, if you like, who were going through famine and they were very destitute, and they wanted to help. Listen to what it says. Paul says this, I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. They pleaded with us. Please, will you let us give? Sometimes in charities in general and, and also with us, it sometimes seems like we're pleading with people to give. How good would it be? People were coming to us, pleading with us, will you let us give, please? That was the New Testament attitude. They had a hungry heart. That's what they wanted to do. It wasn't just because there were responsibilities. Yes, they existed, but that wasn't the point. They wanted to give. And that takes me to the fourth point, because linked to that, giving in the New Testament was free a free and unpressured choice. There, were, there was never any compulsion in the New Testament. Compulsion just breeds resentment. Paul says this, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Because God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Or again, as the message phrases it, I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and to make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. 
God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. That is a key principle. Unfortunately, that principle was lost quite early on in the Christian church. Christendom has a dodgy, uh, the sort of established, when, when Christianity became like the established religion of the Roman Empire, it all got a bit dodgy. And, and for many years, centuries, even until relatively recently, in certain institutional churches, the government of, the, of certain countries raised a tax to pay for the church. No wonder that sort of giving got resented. Missed the point. It's entirely free and an unpressured choice. A couple of bits of practical guidance. Um, Adam touched on these last week. Um, <clears throat> how can we give or how should we approach the practice of giving? And uh, as Adam said, we need to be thoughtful and organised in our giving establishing a habit of it so it becomes something we normally do and you know standing orders is a good way of doing that establishing a habit of it but also being spontaneously and instinctive with our generosity and that's things like the sort of app that we've got so you can do it when you want to as well in my role as uh, on trustees i've sometimes noticed this that we're not always very organized in our giving are we I mean, if we're honest, there is a tendency sometimes to, oh, what if I, oh, oh, I got, oh, got a few coins in my pocket. Look at that. You can keep that one, Rach. I'm good at giving. Um, <laughs> but we can sometimes come to church like, you know, what have I got? And so in the summer months when we're all on holiday, well, oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> no fooling you. <laughs> Yeah, in the summer months when everyone's on holiday and there's less people around, and oh, look, the offering's gone down. What does that say? It says I wasn't very organised in my giving, was I? Because it doesn't necessarily go up, back up in September. Or again, about instinctive giving, this sort of one-off additional, yes, we sometimes take special offerings. Guess what? Take a special offering, the standard offering goes down. That's not very organised, that's not additional. So we need to be aware of those practical things. But we need to see it all through the lens of discipleship. I just want to mention in conclusion a couple of things, a couple of areas of struggle that we can sometimes have. And the first of these is lack of money. What if I genuinely am eager to give, but I simply don't have the money? You know, living on benefits, we're struggling, we've got family to, to, we're trying to look after, and we can barely put food on the table. Hardly meet the regular bills. That is not a reason for embarrassment or feelings of guilt. Because the New Testament is quite clear. 2 Corinthians 8. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. If we simply don't have the money that we can give, then gladly consider, what do I have? What can I give? I haven't got any money. I seem to remember Peter saying that to the man um, in Acts who was sick, who was asking for, for money. I don't have any money, but I will try. What I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the crippled man walked. So what do we have to give if we don't have money? Do I have my time? Do I have my friendship? Do I have my encouragement? Do I have my prayer? 
Do I have my practical skills? Again, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So don't get under pressure if you don't have any money. There is no pressure in giving. Second struggle that some of us have is begrudging giving. What if I can, and perhaps I do give, but whenever I do so, I kind of do it with a grudging attitude. We find we often have a reluctant attitude when it comes to giving. And can I suggest that the, the issue for us probably goes somewhat deeper. Could I have the band up, please? That'd be great, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, if that's how we feel when we do give, that there's a sort of reluctance in our heart, a grudgingness, not that eagerness, not that keenness, not that joy of giving, but oh, oh, I suppose I better. Then the issue goes deeper. And it seems to me that the way forward from that situation does not lie in simply forcing ourselves, making ourselves put more in the basket or in the bowl. That's not solving the problem. See, I think that the antidote to a grudging attitude in this area is to take our eyes right off the specific issue of finances, whether it's our own or the finances of the church or anything else, and instead focus intently on simply worshipping Jesus. It's only a hunch but I think it's likely true in many cases, that if you're struggling with a reluctant and begrudging attitude when it comes to things about money, I bet you struggle with worship. Reckon you do. Because worship is when we are giving ourselves unreservedly to Jesus. And if we can train ourselves over time persistently, consistently, to give ourselves in worship... I think that will unpick some of that negative attitudes. As we spend time concentrating on Jesus, reflecting on his immense love, his utter commitment to us, then over time we will begin to unlock a deep gratitude in us. And gratitude and joy springs out and overflows in generosity. And it's a much, much better motivation for giving than any sense of obligation. Gratitude springing from worship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You know the generous grace of Jesus. You know the kindness. You know the love. You know the immense commitment of Jesus. You know. Or we need to get to know, to reflect on that, to consider that, to meditate on that, to know, come to know the immense generosity of Jesus towards us. And when we give ourselves in worship, persistently to that 
it kind of unlocks a lot of this kind of dodgy attitudes in us about money because it overflows in joyful gratitude and that leads to generosity. So we're going to worship now. And Vicky and the band are going to lead us. And can I encourage you to be wholehearted in pouring ourselves out in worship to Jesus, to give ourselves unreservedly, unrestrainedly to him in worship. As part of our worship, yes, we'll be passing around the bowls, and yes, we can use the fancy new app, or you can put cash, or you can do whatever if you like, but it's part of our worship. Let's do it in that attitude. And let him transform anything in us that's a bit distorted, so that we become like the Philippians, those who, Lord, let me give. I want to give. I want to be part of this thing. I want to be involved. I want to see your kingdom expanding. I want to see people resourced, able to... I want to see the oxen treading the grain. <laughs> Whatever. Lord, I want to give. Let that be part of our worship. For worship will unlock generosity.